Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, there's a slim chance you might have heard of Sir Martin Sorrell and his new baby, S4 Capital. As we hear regularly from him on various stages around the world, S4 is everything he dreamed of doing as the brainchild behind the global marketing services giant WPP, but didn't, couldn't or wouldn't take your pick. But with us today is Mr Sorrell's hand-picked CEO for the Asia-Pacific region, Michelle Derrick. Michelle was previously the big boss at WPP's global digital and data trading unit, Zaxis. I'm not sure whether it's true, but legend has it that Sir Martin chose Michelle because, wait for it, he always delivered on the numbers. Uh, Zaxis could be a five-hour conversation alone, but we don't have that. To S4, however, it has been very active in the Australian market in the past year, making acquisitions across marketing technology and customer experience firms, building out S4's $350 million global acquisition of Media Monks uh, in Australia and its digital media unit, Mighty Hive. So hopefully today we're going to find out what the hell S4 is and what it's up to in Australia and the region and why it is spooking so many of the big holding companies. So welcome, Michelle. Before we get into the bigger picture across the region, we've mentioned that S4 has been active in Australia. Why such the interest in this market? We're comparatively small. For instance, Mighty Hive's uh, Asia-Pacific headquarters is based in Sydney. What's going on with S4's seemingly intense interest down under? Yeah, so so, so why the interest in, in, in Australia? I think it's, um, you're right, Australia is a, a relatively a smaller advertising market globally. Uh, but I do think it's a very important one. And, you know, as, as part of my remit, uh, remit in Asia Pacific, I think it's one of the key three, four markets uh, across the region that we have identified as, as extremely important. Uh, the reason why we ended Australia as sort of the, the first market in Asia Pacific had uh, partly to do with uh, the fact that Mighty Hive, when we merged with them, and as, as we don't call them acquisitions, when we merged with Mighty Hive, they're... Uh, actually, the first international office was in, in, in Sydney, uh, while they're originally a, a San Francisco-based organization. So they opened up uh, probably about five, four or five years ago in, in, in Sydney, gave us a good base there. Uh, and then we started to look at, at other opportunities of expansion globally. Um, and, you know, we ended up uh, in Australia um, twice uh, after that as well. Uh, and for, the, for so far, that has been a very interesting uh, foundation for us across the region. For those that may not know what Mighty Hive does, uh, Michelle, it's a digital media business, programmatic and so forth, yeah? Yeah, so it's a, it's a programmatic consultancy business, uh, I would describe it ourselves. And, you know, if you take sort of the bigger picture of, of S4, S4 is a business that, as we call it, the services business built on top of uh, the key technology platforms globally. Uh, so the Googles, the Amazons, the Adobe's, the, the, the Alibaba's, Tencent's, et cetera. Uh, and our uh, entrance into Australia was through Mighty Hive, and Mighty Hive was one of the first uh, Adobe um, sort of partners in the, the uh, Google marketing platform program. Um, so that is the foundation of, of the business indeed. So it's a, it's a programmatic consultancy business. 
mainly focusing around analytics and data. Media Monks is another business that, that you've got operating in Australia, but that, that was only, it's only about 12 months uh, in this market. Is that right? No, so I think Media Monks is an interesting one. Um, so we... Uh, I have to think back. It's almost a year. Yeah, it's about a year ago that we merged with a company in uh, Australia, mainly a Melbourne-based uh, company called Bistec, which is a uh, Adobe uh, development company, um, mainly focusing on Adobe AEM and Adobe um, Campaign and Adobe Analytics. Uh, and we rebranded Bistec into MediaMonks. Um, and then since uh, a few months, we're active with what we sort of would describe the MediaMonks content um, a production business uh, at the back of obviously our presence in market through the the Adobe um, uh, merger that we did, as well as the Mighty Hive business. So at this stage, we've got three different businesses in in market that you know working very closely together and will be as united as much as possible. Um, one is the Mighty Hive business, which is our uh, programmatic consultancy business. One is what we would describe as like the old BizTech, which we now call MediaMonks uh, Global Solutions. It's around the Adobe practice. And then the, the third one is, you would almost describe it as the, the more original media monks, and that is a creative production um, uh, and content business. So you're building out the media monks uh, in terms of creative production, and that's a talent-based development, and you're, just, you're hiring people to build that out rather than buy something that's here in Australia at the moment. I mean, look, both options are there. Like the, the, we will have in, in, in all key markets, I would look at it, we have both an organic and an in, inorganic strategy, uh, and they are not mutually exclusive. So uh, we have conversations also in Australia with businesses that we might see as as uh, good fits to strengthen the, the 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 creative content production side as well and at the same time we're building a, a organically a, t- a team on the ground and i think the the interesting part is that if you for example like the business that we have right now and that's about uh, 140 150 people in in australia itself across sydney and melbourne um we have a lot of good relationships with with clients in Australia on the platform builds around sort of Adobe. Now, of course, there is UI, UX, and, and campaign materials necessary for that. So it's a good sort of jump start uh, into uh, the content uh, and, and creative production business. And at the same time, we have Mighty Hive um, that obviously has a lot of client relationships on the analytics side and on the data side and on the programmatic media buying side. And there's a lot of uh, creative content production needs as well. So eventually it sort of stitches it all together. Um, and then we build businesses, uh, the business around it through, what I said, both organic uh, by uh, doing a lot of recruitment at the moment in market and across the region, as well as continue to look at other uh, potential merge and acquisition opportunities. What does S4 look like uh, and the group, those divisions you talk about, what does it look like in Australia at least in, in 12 months' time for those that perhaps hear a lot about uh, Sir Martin Sorrell and hear a lot about S4, not as visible here yet. Uh, how would you define the business and, and, and where's the opportunity? We, we, we hear obviously a lot about it being a new world holding company, but put some flesh on the bones for us there, Michelle. It's it's interesting. If I look at as an outsider into sort of the Australian market, and you know, I've been been lucky enough to uh, to, to fly in and out. Well, not at the moment, but previously, pretty pretty frequent uh, to Australia itself, um, and, and looking at that market and having operated in that market, uh, I think there is really room and, and and space for a disruptor at the moment. I think if you uh, look at the holding companies, um, they're, they've been struggling. They're struggling now, but I think they've been struggling uh, over the, for the last, let's say, year and a half or two years. Um, I think the, the, the consultancy businesses are, I think, slightly too far from reality and the, the direct client, client needs right now and being able to 
operate and act quickly. And I think there's a sweet spot somewhere there in the middle where we believe that our strategy with bringing a, even a single identity into the market with a unitary structure, being able clients to act quickly and having a partner that's able to act quickly across the full spectrum of sort of the, the programmatic media execution, the data insights, the analytics, the content creation and production, uh, and so the, the full end-to-end uh, -end consumer journey um, sort of digital transformation piece, uh, having somebody who both, um, you know, from a consultative approach as well as a hands-on keyboard maker's mentality uh, can combine that, I think there's room in the market for that. Uh, and that's what we've seen so far with the clients that we not only globally, but also in Australia, uh, have spoken to. They're very interested in that. Just give us a sense of the sort of clients you're working for. I'm sure you're going to say you can't say that, but um, if it's not the not the names, then tell us the, some of the categories and industries that uh, that you're doing work for. But names, please, Michelle, that'd be nice. It's always about names, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, to your point, I think it's, um, there, there are two sides to that. So we have out of our platforms business, we work a lot with the the, the different banks in, in Australia, the, the, the NAPs, the ANZs, et cetera. So we have we ex have relationships there. You're talking there about the what was the biz tech part of the business that you acquired in, in the, on the platform side? Yeah, that, 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 that is correct. On the Mighty Eye side, obviously, we work um, a lot with, you know, the likes of Country Road Group and Myers and, 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 and Vodafone New Zealand, et cetera. So I think it's it's a combination of both. I think the to your to your first question as well, where you say you know hope, ideally names, but you can imagine that clients don't want to um, don't want to talk about it or we're not able to talk about it. I think it has mainly to do with the way how we approach clients uh, and how we build up relationships. Like not very often we are in the big pitches against the holding companies or or the consultancy companies. Um, and to be honest, you know, not not saying that we're, we're we're constantly saying no to that, but we're trying to avoid them as much as possible. And, and in some cases, we actually step out of it because we don't believe that um, how the current sort of pitching um, culture or pitching attitude that that happens in the in the, in the ecosystem is is very beneficial for for companies like ours. We're trying to push the boundaries. We're trying to. Um, have brands um, not act and operate in the way that they have been doing in in, in the past. Um, there is they need to transform. They need to change a lot of them. Uh, we're there to help. And the problem with a lot of the pitches right now, or that we've seen in in the previous months, is that they're very um, uh, one size fits all, a pure procure, procurement lad, um, and and doesn't give a lot of room for partners that um, are forward thinking and really want to push the boundaries on it. So um, in a world where, you know, and we're, 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 we're thankful for that, obviously, where we see have more of a, a supply demand, that, the supply issue than, than a demand issue, uh, we, we, cho we chose not to um, take our key, key people out of the day-to-day -day business for three to whatever, six months to, to work on pitches uh, to eventually, um, you know, win or lose a, a piece of business based on, uh, if we're able to fill in the Excel sheet in the same way than others. So a lot of our work that we do, and that's also one of the reasons why we can't talk about them, is not because we won the big top line pitches, but it's because we have more of a land and expand um, relationship with a lot of the clients where they've realized that we have certain unique um, features uh, and there's an opportunity to build up a relationship with a client and from there build it out.
So you're coming in from the side in some in, in many instances then, not not necessarily from the big front end, because it's a very entrenched behaviour, Michelle, in terms of, I mean, it would be regional and globally in terms of pitches and the way it's done. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued by how uh, you sidestep that process uh, where even the brand side will go and procurement will say, we want this, and it's very structured. How are you sidestepping that? Well, I, I think to your point, I think it's, you know, you might call it the, the side door or the back door. Um, for us, it's the front door. Uh, but a lot of these, 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 because we're a new company, right? Um, and, and we don't have, or let's say, a lot of existing uh, revenue streams from these clients and existing relationships with a lot of these clients. Uh, there is nothing to lose for us. There's only, we're only, like, in that sense, like, any sort of dollar opportunity we can find through the front door, the side door, or back door by delivering services that are incremental for that potential client is for us an extra dollar. And I think that's very different from being in a very defensive position as the holding companies or the, 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 the consultancies that are in a defense mode at the moment instead of an attack mode, if you want to use these words. I think the key thing there is, is that, you know, we've, we've had conversations with clients where we uh, went in through, again, call it, call it the side door. And again, I, I, I prefer to call it our, our own front door, but um, we have these opportunities and then it's all about being able to deliver that because, you know, the reality is, you know, and it's, is we are maybe not the most known and, and established party in, um, in, in any pitch situation or any sort of client conversation, right? Because we are the new people Although we have trusted, uh, maybe senior leaders who, who had these relationships for many years, we still have to prove ourselves. And, you know, having that land and, and, and expand opportunity and, and that strategy and doing that with the entrepreneurial mindset that a lot of our, our business leaders have because they came in through mergers into the business and they've always been the challenger in their, in their, in their space, it's a great opportunity to show that it doesn't have to be as, as slow moving and as, 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 um, uh, as difficult as it is with their current partner, but you can move quickly, snappy with fast results um, and, and, and a lot of sort of clear touch points. Uh, and clients seem to like that at the moment. And that's why we were able to sort of expand that opportunity. They're great points, but often on the client side, they're as slow, cumbersome and bureaucratic as what some of the, the supply side on agencies or groups are as well. The approval process and all the things that need to need to happen. How are you breaking that down? Well, it, it's a very interesting point because we actually, you know, we, we had a conversation with, there was, a, there was almost sort of a pitch, to be honest, um, where a client, you know, the feedback from a client was, this is great, this is amazing, this is exactly what we need. Um, this is what the future should be. We're not sure yet if we are ready for this right now, right? And I, I think that one of the biggest limitations of the success of our business uh, is most likely the, the the inability for brands to change at the same speed as as, as we we want to help them to change, right? But I think the the, the, the key driver is finding within these brands um, uh, the key drivers of change, you know, and those are often individuals or teams. And if we, if we have conversations with clients or potential clients and they are not ready for it, there are two, two things to do. One, uh, obviously break it down in smaller pieces and, and let them see that there is light at the end of that tunnel uh, and, and guide them through that process. Uh, but the only way to do that is finding that ambassador internally who really wants to drive change. And the good thing right now is, is that more and more often we see that that driver of change is at sea level or is at the board. 
because they realize that if they don't change, you know, maybe the future of the business is at risk. And I think, you know, maybe a few years ago, I'm not sure if that realization was there yet. And the, the driver of change was probably not high enough in the organization to actually push that through the organization. What's the strike rate there, Michelle, in terms of hitting uh, those potential prospects, the prospect clients uh, that are prepared to do it this way or shift the way they operate? Is it a 50, 50 one and two? How does it work? It's significantly higher than that. Thankfully, but I think a lot of that has to do with identifying of using the right opportunities in it. And that's where, you know, in some cases, um, uh, maybe because of our relatively higher profile, or at least from a PR value at the moment uh, in the market, we got a lot, we invited to a lot of those um, um, pitcher situations or, or, or client invites. And in some cases, we just have to say no to it because we, there is not that, that pure uh, um, will and or ambassador internally to make that to make that change. So the moment that we've identified that there are people that want to make the change and the, the, the brand is ready for it, uh, the strike rate of that is, is significantly higher than 50%. What is it then about your structure, your processes and your talent that allows you to deliver faster or at speed and faster than, than the consulting groups you talk about, the agency groups you talk about? What's going on there? I think, I think it's, a few, it's a few different things. And one of them is, and we, we talk about this a lot, um, uh, both internally and externally, is uh, what we describe a unitary structure. And, and, you know, having done about 10 years at WP myself, and obviously, Sir Martin um, doing, did, did over 30 years there, uh, we have quite a lot of experience, and obviously we're not the only two, but we've quite a lot of experience within the holding groups. Um, and if I look at that, back at the, those 10 years for myself, one of the biggest frustrations I had was the way that we brought in amazing talent. And amazing talent, not from a recruitment point of view, but from an acquisition point of view. Because I don't think there is, you know, you, like there is this shiny, shiny company that you think this is an amazing asset that I would love to use and present to all my clients and I know it's going to help them. The moment that a holding company then does that, that, that acquisition, they put them on earnouts. And it means that eventually for the next three to five years, that executive team is only interested in maximizing the value in their own PL. And you can't blame them for that because that is how they have been sort of sold, sold the story. So the, the ability to, to, to take that solution and present it to all your clients and use it across the organization is almost is almost zero for the first three to five years, which is ridiculous. If you think about it, so the way that we, we we structure our organization in a unitary way is that when we do a merger, and that's the reason why we don't call them acquisitions, but mergers. When we merge with companies, we do the, the let's call it the purchase um, for a full hundred percent. So from day one, they're only they're only vested in one thing, and that is bringing greater success to the total S four organization. And what it does for brands is that from day one that that business is in you have 100% access to the brightest, most creative, most analytical, whatever type of business it is, across your full client portfolio. And I think that is the key differentiator with, with holding companies or, or, or the consultancies like Accenture. But so one thing that's been in my mind for some time since uh, Sir Martin launched S4 is exactly what you're talking about, valid points. But why didn't he, you're in WP, WPP, why didn't he do that there? He was the guy that could have changed that at WPP in terms of the structures, the process, the KPIs, the incentivization, the way you acquire. Why did he not do it there? 
I think it's it's and it's a really good question, and um, I've asked him that question myself as well. Um, because when he said that we're gonna we're gonna launch S four and this is the idea, that was the first thing that came up in my mind as well. I think I think we. Um, I'm not sure who's going to like if I'm going, to, I'm going to say this, but I think we need to um, understand how big WVP grew and how much different um, um, uh, forces there were uh, and how much it, it actually took to make significant changes like this. Because if you do hundreds of acquisitions on an annual basis, it tends to hundreds of acquisitions on an annual basis, the difference between doing doing an acquisition and and um, buying it for 40 50 60 70 percent sort of what what wp used to do versus 100 percent has obviously significant impact on on cash flow risk and, and and matters like that so it's very difficult the moment you're down a certain path to make that change and i think the luxury that we have with uh, s4 is the moment that the business started you know close to two years uh, ago right now it was a clean sheet of paper. So you can structure it in exactly the way that you feel fit for the future instead of for the past. And I think that's why it's like, if it was so easy to make that change, uh, why didn't do WP it right now? Why didn't do Publicis do it or Dentsu or any of the other, um, or, or even the exchanges of the world? Because they're stuck in the way that they do it right now. And it's very difficult to make the change. And that is the, the one of the reasons why you see holding companies struggle right now is because they, I mean, they're really smart people there and they see what the future is going to look like, but they got this sort of thousand pound gorilla that they need to turn around. And, and a lot of the old stuff is sort of holding them back from being able to make that pivot uh, and, and, and sail in the right direction. In essence, Sir Martin became a prisoner of his own making in some cases, because I, I talked to a lot of the divisional CEOs in this market and they lament and have lamented, for, by the way, for 15 years about the onerous reporting lines, the, the limitations they can make on decision-making, the approval they've got to have to real estate, to hire a secretary or a junior or a senior. It goes all the way to the top. Now, if it was such a problem, perhaps it's governance, but Sir Martin is greatly respected, but also a bloody control freak. And so why could he not have shifted that? Yeah, you, you say it's a, it's a control freak. I think there are, there are different views to that. Um, and, you know, like, I, I look at it in a different way, and I, I don't see him as a control freak. I do do think he, he likes to be involved in a lot of things, but he also gives a lot of trust and confidence the moment that you know the business is 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 running the right way. Uh, and and how much of a control freak can you be in a um, what is it? I'm seventeen billion dollar company and about hundred fifty thousand employees. Uh, so I think it, I think it's all relative, and I also think that in a lot of cases. Um, his control freakness has been used of ex- uh, has been used as an excuse for uh, incapable underperformance and incapability. If I'm really honest, we will get off WVP in a very short second. But you didn't seem to have that problem when you were at Zaxis, or was that because you were delivering? And there's a lot of there's a lot of scope for somebody who's delivering on the numbers and delivering growth. You're a, you're a golden boy. No, I, don't, I mean I think it was a golden team to start off with. I think the. The interesting thing about Zaxxas at that time, and I say purposefully at that time because, you know, the, the industry changed as well. And the model, right? And your Zaxxas model changed radically. It was good to start with. Yeah, like and, and like if you look back at the model, what it was, um, um, it, it, it was a good model for at that time. Like you would never launch a business like that with with, with that model. And that's the reason why uh, Zaxxas leadership, which, which is amazing leadership and, and, and still there and, and, and running a very sizable business, um, uh, have changed the model to adjust to, um, to to current times, and that's exactly what you 
need to do. And that's exactly what a Zexus could do because it has always been run very independently. Like it, it, it wasn't an agency. Um, it wasn't sort of uh, looked at it from an agency perspective. And especially in the beginning phase, we had a lot of sort of freedom to operate more as a startup. But it was literally a startup on sort of steroids um, in, a, in a space where obviously we were close to agencies and we were close to brands. And that's why we were able to grow really fast. And the reason, and I think the reason why Zexus was successful in WP versus a lot of the other, and I don't want to call them programmatic trading desks, but we sort of at that time were compared that way, why the others in the other holding groups were not so successful is because they did not get that freedom. And one of the things that Sir Martin saw in a really early stage is the potential success of Zexus and gave it the freedom to develop itself uh, and be that uh, sort of startup under the umbrella of the wider group. In retrospect, Michelle, what we saw was Zaxxas doing early on, and gosh, that must have been, what, 2010, 11, 12, 13? Where was it? 2011 was the kickoff. Uh, so I think 2013, 14, 15 were sort of prime years, yeah. We've seen a lot since then talk about, and Zaxxas was part of it, uh, as were the, the whole sector about, you know, even uh, Mark Pritchard at P&G talked about the murky digital supply chain, and you guys, were, you guys were arbitraging and doing all sorts of interesting things that were right at the time and clever at the time and profitable at the time. It wasn't sustainable. Partly it wasn't sustainable, but I also think that, um, I think especially the press took a very sort of negative view on it, if I'm really honest, uh, because Zexus had and still have a lot of uh, happy clients. And eventually what, what Zexus positioning was at that time, I can't speak for what it is right now, but at, at that time was, you know, yes, we, we, we call it arbitrage, but we make a margin, but we also do a lot of upfront investment in let it be uh, trading commitments or let it be on technology, people, resources, data. So eventually it didn't operate it differently than let's call it a net network at a time, but because it was owned by a holding company, all of a sudden there was a lot of scrutiny around it. And to be honest, and this is the last thing, what, what, I, what I want to say about it is like, there have been multiple cases where brands have been outspoken about sort of being against the Zexus business model. But once they were hitting the end of the year uh, and certain uh, um, targets uh, were not hit yet, then all of a sudden there was a little bit more flexibility in there in their positioning towards Texas because they knew that Texas was able to deliver the results. So, you know, that's, I mean, if it, if it suits them, then all of a sudden the model is accepted. So, and you did right in that the, it, it cuts both ways. And, and, uh, and there was a little bit of uh, responsibility shifting, you could say to the supply side when, when perhaps there's all parties are involved, take your point on that. So uh, listen, we'll, we'll move on. I want to get to the way that you operate. Now, if you think about media marks and, and, and content production and so forth, you're, you're fast, you're furious, you turn around. What is it about um, this? You know, you talk about a, a fast and borderless world, centers of ex- excellence and capability where it's happening 24 hours around the clock. Now, we have heard this for a number of years, even from the holding companies. The difference, it seems, that you guys are doing, you're actually delivering on, it's not rhetoric. No, I, I think the, the interesting thing is, and it, 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 it all comes back a little bit to sort of the unitary structure that I spoke about earlier. But um, um, me, let, let's take Media Monks for a sec. Media Monks is a, is a, a content creation production business, uh, creative content production business that exists for about 18 years. I started in a basement with a double of Dutch guys and sort of built it out. And if you if you look at um, production companies like that, the majority of them hit a certain um, um, maximum growth capability because they were, did creative production in, in one specific vertical. They were good at, let it be film, or they were good at experiential, or they were good at 
AR, VR, or they were good at, but they never sort of get out of that, the skill of that. And the reason why they never grew out of that is because it's very difficult, especially in these project-based opportunities, to have a constant pipeline unless you're global. Right, because you know, there's, there, it's 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 not on a retained business. Right? It's, it's all it's all sort of uh, at, at that time, at least, it was all project based. Um, one of the things that Media Monks did really smart at that time, um, they started uh, with a few small acquisitions um, by a few shops that were specialized in other areas where they had not a lot of um, um, know-how about yet, but knew it was close to what they were doing. Um, an example of that is the Butler's um, um, a relatively small, or 150, 200 people shop in, in Sao Paulo. And there's, there's a, a literally sort of a factory with a bunch of people, uh, the brightest you could find around sort of robotics and experiential and like really cool stuff. Like ha having that as a center of excellence, it doesn't make sense to replicate that to multiple markets. Right? Because it's all project-based. And it's the same with, like, in Hilversum, which is about 30-minute ride outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, they've probably got about 150, 200 people uh, of, of the best of the best around VR and AR. And in Amsterdam, they brought in a, a small tabletop uh, a company who did tabletop shoots, where you see all this, like, melting chocolate and popping bottles of champagne and all that stuff, like, which is a, is a specialism. So... Right now, if somebody in Shanghai sells an experiential robotic something, it's going to be built in Sao Paulo, shipped to Shanghai. If somebody wants melted chocolate in, a, in, in, in an ad in Australia, that's being shot in Amsterdam. Hey, the chocolate looks the same there. It's not really chocolate, by the way. It's, that was the biggest disappointment in my life. <laughs> I, I don't think you want to eat it. Um, but since I've since I've been in that studio, like I look at ads in a total different way. That's for sure, um, and food ads especially. Um, so, and I think being able to do that and building up these production center of excellence um, brings the brightest of the brightest together and does that at scale. So, MediaMarkt is built in a way that they have uh, production up centers of excellence at the different locations for production. Uh, um, uh, needs that are sort of less time bound. Like in a tabletop shoot, obviously you can do that sort of from a distance or, you know, robotic stuff. You can do that from, from Sao Paulo. That are not time bound user centers of excellence. Fine. That setup is great. Uh, then they have services offices across the globe, which I think is about 30, 30 out of them, uh, which obviously help brands uh, in the market itself. And then there are production capabilities that are sitting across the different time zones. So when it comes to, for example, to content creation, like let it be ads or, or, or any sort of messaging that has shorter turnaround times, there are production hubs in you know, Buenos Aires, Los Angeles, London, Amsterdam, Singapore, uh, etc. So eventually it follows the sun 24-7 on production capabilities to, to try out sort of high volume creative production. Um, so for the different type of production capabilities, there's a different setup. But because everything is in a unitary structure, like you can tap into every, any resource across MediaMonks and Mighty Hive and all the business that we brought in under these two umbrellas without have to worry about where does that revenue sit? How can I intercompany charge from one side to another side? We don't have that. We probably have the smallest finance organization you can have because we don't have that internal bullshit. How are your, uh, your markets, your countries, your divisions, how are they KPI'd? Because everything you talk about there, you, you hear is, is done by others, whether it's consulting firms uh, with their you know, retail specialists. But it's not. That's the whole thing. They talk about it, but it's not. Like, 
a, a one publicist or uh, like we're like all, all, like even the within WVP the 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 agencies that were set up specifically for brands right we had this trend obviously for a while and you have like a few people from creative a few people from media a few people there's this special agency being set up at the back there's still an allocation from revenues going from one side to another side and there's still a fight about it right so how do you ch- how do you beat that your people and your divisions and your brands have still got to be KPI'd somehow rather than being a big melting pot where the underperformers are getting as much as the overperformers how do you deal with that so eventually the the people like so obviously there is leadership at uh, let's call it sort of leadership at the top a lot of them were founders of the businesses that we brought in right they are 100% KPI'd on the S4 performance and the reason why 100% KPI'd on that is because one they, when they when they merged their business into S4, they got 50% cash and they got 50% S4 stock. Like we're a publicly listed and traded company in, in, in London. So they care, like, how do we grow this total pie? Because everybody gets better out of it. If you go down in the organization, you see that people are KPI'd on personal KPIs and it's more often the soft KPIs, which I think is very important that we look at that. And the rest is on the overall S4 performance. So it so it that's it, it doesn't matter it, like we have an MD uh, well I'm in Singapore right now but we have an MD in Singapore who uh, can fight hard for a client and with all love sees the client being invoiced out of LA for example because that's where we already have an existing client um, um, uh, financial relationship with that client no problem at all never a discussion about where that sits in the P&L and I can tell you from 10 years WPP that probably takes frees up 25% of my, my time on a weekly basis but not having those type of conversations. Great points. Okay, so I'm, I think I'm nearly convinced that you might be onto something, uh, Michelle. <laughs> the, the, just very quickly, you talk about centres of excellence, South America, Scandinavia and, and Shanghai, for instance. Is there one uh, in Australia? Absolutely. Or will there be one? No, there is, there, there is one, and that is our, you know, the, what we could do, the old BizTech business, which is our Adobe AM development business. Just to be clear, though, um, BizTech was in Australia, in Melbourne. It had it had operations in, I think, Canada, Russia, and Kazakhstan. What the hell's going on there? No, I mean that's it, very interesting. I mean, like we can't deny, obviously, the, the the quality of development capabilities in in countries like Kazakhstan or Russia. But I think the, the interesting thing is, like, we this 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 walk with me for a second like, so media monks is really good at the the creative the graphical side of uh, consumer journeys for example right so let it be from an ads perspective let it be from a content perspective etc uh, they're good at ui they're good at ux uh, more and more they uh, they had opportunities to move into the actual platform uh, build so adobe experience manager etc I'm not sure if you've ever hi- tried to hire uh, Adobe Experience Manager uh, specialist, but they're like very difficult to find. Then there is a BizTech business that uh, is doing extremely well in that area. Got about 100 people divided over, you know, mainly Australia, um, so Kazakhstan, Russia, and a little bit in in in, um, in Canada at that time. That has uh, high recognition with Adobe. One of the co-founders is the most rewarded Adobe specialist in the world. They, they have that existing relationship with Adobe. And coming back to the, the one of the first points, S4's business is, a, is building servers on top of the key technology platforms. And Adobe is a key technology platform. So we did the, the merger with BizTech to, one, you know, build, have a service solution on top of um, Adobe, having 80, 90, 100 uh, Adobe uh, specialists all of a sudden you know, under, under the fold. Uh, as as well as uh, have have built that service organization on top of one of the key technology platforms, business, uh, Adobe. So 
that rebranded into Media Monks, and that's the foundation of our global Adobe business at the moment. Because the the Melbourne, Sydney, Kazakhstan, Russia team are delivering projects in Canada at the moment, in the Middle East, in the US, in in Europe, uh, in, in and in Australia, everywhere. So that's one of the centers of expertise, and that's why there's a small chance that well, yeah, there's, there's zero chance that we're going to build another AEM uh, business outside of this organization. You know, the, the Bistec, which we now call Media Monks, obviously, but outside of the Bistec organization. And so, uh, you know, it, it may be the inferiority complex that we Australians have about being at the arse end of the world. And, and, and but, but I sit there and say, out of all the options you had to build that p particular expertise, you chose a Melbourne company for your global expertise and there wasn't uh, anything in America, Europe, UK, Asia that could have delivered what you needed. You went to, you went to Melbourne. It almost sounds as a complaint, Paul. Yeah, it's. I think I might be being slightly provocative, um, so <laughs> f f forgive me for that. But I mean, it still it still begs the point. You did you did come to Australia for a global Adobe uh, expertise. The Americans are, you know, you got, they're evangelical about this stuff. Um, surely there would have been uh, America would have been an obvious spot. Yeah, it is. But the reality is also that, like we, like, and if you look at, for example, the, the global leadership of S four, we're all spread across the globe. We're not a heavily US-centered uh, organization or UK-centered organization. Um, and we look at where we can find the best people. And the reality is we're not going to be in 150 or 200 countries like, like back in the days, uh, maybe Holtco's and or uh, consultancies were doing. We're going we're gonna to be strategically in about 35-ish, 35, 40 countries in the world max because we believe that we can cover with it. And within that, um, 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 uh, those 35, 40 markets, we look for the best. Um, and, and these guys are, were, were really good, are really good, uh, and eventually we're bringing that discipline to, uh, to other markets. Like nobody would think that our robotics development and experiential development center would be in Sao Paulo. That would not be your first pick. Uh, well, they're they're really great in what they do, and that's why you know we see them in all the all the stuff that we've in. Okay, I'm coming to a close because I've taken too much of your time. But uh, just on that uh, that BizTech and MediaMonks acquisition in Australia, you've got Adobe, so you build that out globally the expertise. But if you're if you're a services business based on built on platforms, then where is your expertise in Salesforce, Oracle, SAP, Google Marketing Cloud? Are you going to build? Are they going to be integrated all into the MediaMonks business with different divisions? How do you build that? Expertise? expertise so there's there's a couple of there so uh, on, the, on the google side obviously we're, we're pretty well uh, well established uh, including cloud and that, that sits in our mighty business uh we've announced probably about three months ago another merger in australia of a company called lens 10 also melbourne and, and sydney we're still waiting for sort of final government approval because of covid there's a there's a little bit slight slight delay on that but it should be close to hopefully soon that's with the foreign foreign investment review board i imagine there is that what's happening there exactly yeah, yeah. the the farb yes uh, which was was pretty pretty australian unique uh, we've we've experienced but uh, that, that should be it should be all right that one obviously uh that we have the adobe expertise we just announced last month i'm losing time a little bit um uh, probably about less last month um, the merger with a, a Amazon specialist in Seattle, um, uh, and we got another, you know, a couple of hands full of potential uh, mergers coming up. And a lot of the platforms that you're talking about, you know, the Salesforce of the world, are obviously high on our list. Um, so you know, expect some more news in that area. Um, if we, if the, like, if we really are going into like the SAP type stuff, which is more ERP, right? It's enterprise resource planning and stuff. It's a bit, it's a bit too macro. Yeah.
so I, I wouldn't expect anything per se there uh, yet uh, for the foreseeable future. But uh, I think especially on the on the Salesforce side, but then also uh, in China around the, the, the Ali and the Tencent side, you can expect some uh, some more development soon. Will S4 ever buy into some sort of traditional ad shop? A traditional as in traditional media? Both. No, like you never know, obviously. But um, the fact that we're pure digital uh, and have nothing of that, let's call it old stuff, um, um, does it doesn't make a lot of sense for, to inv- for us to invest in that, and that's that's what we see with a lot of clients who want us to, you know, work on their their offline business as well. We friendly decline that opportunity because it's I don't know, why would you move into a business that doesn't grow? Yes, but I think there's a legend. Legend has as well that Sir Martin Sorrell used to say that too before he bought what was it Ogilvy or whatever it was uh, way way back. So I'm not discounting that one yet, uh, Michelle. I have to say I'm I'm not believing it yet. Acquisitions, final one, further acquisitions in Australia, or you've got it sorted now? No, like I mean, like Australia is not that far away from me, so um, uh, we're still uh, we're still looking at uh, Australia. Um, well, ideally, also spread a little bit more across the APEC region or or the globe. The, the reality is, um, is there are actually there, there, there are quite a lot of interesting and good shops in Australia. So uh, don't be surprised if uh, there will be something in the, um, in the press in the foreseeable future. Oh, there's, there's a teaser. Final one, the region. I know I said that last time, but this is the final one. The region, there is, there is rising geopolitical tension globally. And, and obviously you're in the hot spot now between you know, the West and the East and what's going on there. Does that give you some um, heightened risk about your growth prospects for, for, for the Asia region at least? Uh, what, how do you manage and juggle that? Is it a concern? Is it a concern? Yes, it's a concern. And I think, you know, the, the, the highly geopolitical issues, not only across the region, but especially across the globe, I think, um, it should be a concern for everybody because I, I don't think it's good for, um, for, for anybody. If you look at, like, how we see the, uh, the longer-term future uh, as well as what our strategy is, is that we, we've always believed that about 40% of our revenue should come from uh, the Americas, about 40% should come from APEC, and about 20 from uh, from Europe. Uh, we're not there yet because probably right now it's about 10, 15% coming out of APEC, so we have a, a long way to grow. Uh, and we, we, are, we know that outside of Australia, uh, India, uh, Japan, uh, we obviously also need China, and that's where a lot of the, the, the tension is right now. Uh, we still strongly believe in China, uh, and we will continue to to build out up our uh, build out our organic business there as well as we're very active in the acquisition side. Has it changed already the way that you operate in China and and Hong Kong for that matter? No, I mean obviously we see that in Hong Kong um, it's it's trickier not per se because of the geopolitical, but especially what it means for brands at the moment in Hong Kong. Uh, we see a lot of people, uh, you know, brand uh, Spencer have been going down significantly there after. You know all the, the the different issues they've had there in the last uh, year and a half or so, uh, but we continue to grow grow fast in China and focus on China. Uh, and let's hope that the, the geopolitical issues are going to be resolved uh, somewhere by the end of this year. Well, listen, I better let you go and uh, and run the emerging burgeoning empire uh, that is S4. How far away from this announcement of an acquisition are we talking? Weeks, months in Australia, that is. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> nice. You are destined to be a politician. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Michelle. Thanks, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.